Now we're back into our, our normal walking through the, the book of Luke. And we're back in chapter 13, 10 to 17. When we read this, I, wanna, I want you to think about a couple questions as we're reading it. I want to ask you this as we read through. Is this a story of, primarily, is this a story of healing? Is it a story of hypocrisy? Or is it a story of hope? I want you to think about that as we read through it, okay? The title of the message is Hope. Probably gives it away. But think through it as we read. In hopelessness. Hope in hopelessness. Luke 13, 10 to 17. Hear now the word of God. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman who was there, who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years, she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman! You are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey or ox from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Pray with me. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart, regardless of age or station in life. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, comfort for those in storm winds, and rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we'd ask that you would meet us in our deepest place of need, but never as we prescribe them, but rather as you do. For you know what we need most. So come now, fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Three things, very, very simple headings in this narrative, and we'll run right through it. Number one, the day. There's something to the day that we have to talk about briefly. Certainly the deliverance, number two, and then finally the detractor. But back to the question. When you read through a passage like that, certainly the healing jumps right off the pages, right? And and certainly then the hypocrisy, you can see that. But I I think there's a far deeper message in all of it. Back in in seminary early on, uh, when studying under Dr. Sproul, I'll never forget this comment that he made when he was talking about, you know, how to come to a text of Scripture. And he made something very clear, and it was very profound the way he put it. He said there's only one meaning in in the text, but there are countless applications to it. It's almost virtually impossible to exhaust it. So there's a primary meaning in the text, and I think the meaning is hope. I don't think there's any question, but you can see all that happens in that narrative, in that confrontation that Jesus has with the religious leader. But it's powerful to understand what's happening in this, in the hope that this woman absolutely has. So let's take a look at it under these three headings. We shall, I promise you, head out into some deep water and let our nets down for a catch. Okay? Number one, what was the day? Why is this, why the day? being so important. Let's take on a Sabbath. It's just a, any Sabbath, but it's, it's one of the last few Sabbaths that Jesus will have on this earth uh, before his crucifixion. He's almost out of time. He's got a couple months before the cross, and he's at a synagogue. If you remember the Babylonian captivity, we've unpacked this. Why are there synagogues? Remember, there was the tabernacle in the Old Testament that was on the move with the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness after being freed from bondage in Egypt. And they had the tabernacle. Then the tabernacle was transformed right into the temple. They built a stationary location for God. But in the Babylonian captivity, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed and there was no place for worship. So these synagogues, like churches, if you will, sprung up. And the regulation was if you had at least 10 men on a register somewhere, anywhere, it qualified you for a synagogue. And when you look at Galatians 4.4 in the fullness of time, time was pregnant that Jesus was birthed for us. This was part of that perfect time frame. There were places for him to teach. Remember, he wasn't welcomed at the temple. But there were places for him to teach, and he opened his teaching. Remember his first teaching lesson in, in, in the temple, um, excuse me, in the synagogue. 
And this is the last one that we hear about. We don't, we don't hear about any more. And you're going to see that the first message in the synagogue is fulfilled in this passage. So it's powerful that we understand what's going on. So the temple's destroyed. We have these synagogues. And, and let's take a look at where Jesus began. And you'll see the fulfillment in, in these words. We'll go back to 4, chapter 4 in Luke, 18 to 19. And he, and he said these words. Remember, he unrolled the scroll. The scroll of Isaiah had been given to him. He's an itinerant preacher who's traveling. And he was invited to preach that day. So this was his first message in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. You see it in the picture of the woman? I mean, this is what he's come to do, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So now I want to just take a look at what we have, at least in record. There have to be many, many more, but we have seven, at least the way I counted in in the New Testament, Sabbath healings. So let's look at that, and then we'll kind of tie it all together on why this day becomes so important. Okay, ready? Luke 4.35, the demon-possessed man. You'll probably remember we preached through that. A little further in that passage, he comes out. That's in the synagogue. The next one's outside the synagogue. He goes to Peter's home. Remember Peter's home? And and Peter's mother-in-law had a high fever, and and he heals her on the Sabbath. Not in the synagogue, but on the Sabbath. Then Luke 6.10, remember the man with the withered hand? That was in the synagogue, and he heals him. And then Luke 14, we haven't got to that yet. Man with swelling of his body. And then John, a long time ago when we were doing John, man was crippled 38 years by the pool Bethesda. Remember him? Sabbath day healings. John 9, 7, a man born blind. Jesus is doing this intentionally. He doesn't have to heal on the Sabbath. He could heal the day before. He could heal the day after. And there was a regulation that you weren't supposed to, I mean, we talked about the the regulations for, for not working. We'll get deeper into that in a moment. But you could heal. If it was a life or death situation, none of these were. So there's something that Jesus is doing. Everything he does is intentional. But there's something intentional about this day. They've corrupted this day. The Jewish religious leaders have turned this day into something it was never intended to be. So he's healing intentionally on the Sabbath to challenge them. And he's challenging them deeply. And he's winning the hearts of the people, at least through the healings. And he is angering the religious leaders. So let's go a little bit further so that we can really deeply understand this point. Mark 2, 27 to 28. I want you to see this. This is important that we don't miss. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Just, just we'll get back to that. Let's go further. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Couple things you need to look at that passage. What does that mean? Jesus says uh, he's the Son of Man and he's Lord over the Sabbath. What 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 is he saying? He's saying that everything the Sabbath was about. And remember when the Sabbath was instituted. So now go to the beginning part of the phrase. How do we know that the Sabbath was made for man and man was not made for the Sabbath? What was created first, the Sabbath or man? Man. Man was created on the sixth day. He's the penultimate part of creation. The Sabbath is the seventh day, the day of rest. So we, we, we understand the passage clearly that the Sabbath was created, at, made for man. This was man's opportunity to do what? We have to understand what Sabbath meant to God. Remember, this is before we corrupted everything. So there was a, the ability for Adam and Eve to rest was, was inherent in their humanity. It's no longer in your humanity or mine because it's sinful and it's broken. Has there ever been a culture in the history of the world that is more in need of Sabbath rest than ours today? But here's the understanding, and many in the church have missed what Sabbath rest means. They believe it's simply in abstaining from work. It's not Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest is not only abstaining from regular work, but it's advancing toward the Lord. You can't just abstain from labor. The whole point of the Sabbath at the beginning, when God says on the seventh day he blessed it and made it holy, what did he do? He turned all of creation back in on himself. He turned everything he had created back on. Now he says it's all about me. First day it was very good, and the second day it was very good, and on and on, and everything was very good. Then he says, what? Everything is very good. Why? Because now I've turned it all back on me. Keep your focus on everything that I have created is about me. That's the importance of understanding this. So Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, and what is he saying to the religious leaders? Everything that you think the Sabbath is about points to me. Everything. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the true rest. I'm it. 
That's the deepest message here. And what did they do? They corrupted the Sabbath. They turned it into something that God never had intended it to be. This was a day to abstain from labor and advance toward the Lord. Works of mercy and, and, and works of, of, of ministry and all of those works, they're not only allowed, they're required on the Sabbath. Those are requirements. So God has, has, has drawn us into this understanding that takes us back to creation. Remember, you can't look at just the, the, the Decalogue and, 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 and look at the fourth commandment. This is a creation ordinance. This goes back to creation. And remember, we're moving forward toward the recreation when we will be able to fully rest. Even now, those of us who do take the time for the Sabbath, you still know there's restlessness in your heart. It's that sinful nature. It's what Brian said, the attack. I mean, you're here and you're probably thinking about some of the things you need to go do when you get out. And you're wondering, how long is he going to go today? I don't know. So this is the point. Jesus says, I, this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit turned everything in on us. I'm your Sabbath rest. I'm what it all pointed to. And I'm here. And I'm here to draw you into it. That's the point of the day, okay? We have the day, now the deliverance. Take a look at the deliverance. This, this deliverance fulfills his first synagogue preaching message. The, the scroll of Isaiah, it fulfills this. A woman was there crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She's bent over and could not straighten up. Just, do you have a second? Put that, put that, I want you to see this picture. You have it? Dan? You have the picture? Okay. That's, this is a real medical condition. Here's what's happened. There, there's, there's some kind of disorder in her back early on in life. And the, the, the spine begins to fuse. And the only way to take the pressure off is to begin to lean forward. And what happens is over time, the further you lean forward and the longer this condition persists, which there really was no way to heal it, nor is there today. Some have there been rods put in people's backs, and it's, but it's a very difficult condition. You end up becoming fixed in that bent over position. So that's, that's the picture. She's fixed. Notice where she's looking. Spurgeon said she's looking at, 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 at her grave. That's, there's, there's, there's no life. This is about as bad of a physical condition that you could possibly have. So go back to the passage. So there's, there's the picture. So this is also a picture of what? This is the picture of the condition of every human heart. Every human heart is bent and broken. And that's where we are, down in the grave. So this is a powerful story for us to, to, to get a handle on. She's been bent over. She can't straighten up. Now seeing her, he called her forward and said, woman, that's a term of endearment. That, that's, so kids, don't, don't, don't ever do that at your house to your, to your mom. Don't say woman. Don't do that. Because today it's not a term of endearment. It's, it's almost wouldn't be a good term. Back then it was. Remember Jesus said at the wedding at Cana, woman, what does this have? He was not being disrespectful. So he says to this, he acknowledges her, woman, you are set free. But we've got to talk about this for just a moment. He sees her. How does he see her? How does she see him? She's in the back. So she's not allowed up. She's not even wanted. What did they associate suffering and and, and sorrow with? Sin, right? So she's a a sinner. Everybody in the synagogue are are saints, right? But she's the sinner. She has this horrible condition. God has judged her for her sin, just like Job's friends believed, right? So she's in the back. She's bent over. She can't see. How, how does, how does, uh, it doesn't say it, but here's what I think. I, I, I could be wrong. You could question me. I think Jesus, woman, I think he looks you in the eyes. But the only way he does that is he bends down. Would that be consistent with the character of Christ? Sure. He bent down coming off that throne from on high and came into this world. I think the Lord Jesus Christ bent down and said, woman. This is a powerful picture. But it gets deeper. I'm going to show you something. He calls her. I think that's a little humiliating. He calls her out in front of everybody and calls her forward. Imagine how long it took this woman to walk forward. He doesn't go to her. He calls her forward. He set this whole thing up. He's at work. And he's at work right now, 2,000 years later, for us to come into this store. You should be in that synagogue right now watching this woman shuffle her feet to come to Christ. You ready? And how does she come? How does she come? She's been what? Called. Christ has called her unto himself. Don't miss this. 
You have been set free from your infirmity. That should be enough, but it's not for Jesus. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised what? God. Picture. Again, it's not in the passage, but I, she straightens up, and she praises God. I don't think she looks up. She looks straight at God, and she praises Jesus. She knows who he is. She knows what he has done. And why does he put his hands on her? Is there any need for the hands? No, not for him to heal, but for her to be whole. I don't know how often she was held or touched. Probably not often. There's no need to touch the woman for Jesus to heal. She needed the touch. So he puts his hands on her. And she stands up and looks him in the eyes and praises God. Don't miss this. But you ready for this? Here's the key, I think, to the entire passage. Why was this crippled woman at the synagogue? Why? Psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who survived the Holocaust, he spent his time trying to help others find meaning even in the face of the Holocaust. In Man's Search for Meaning, I'm going to give you a quote in just a second. Why is this woman at the synagogue? You have to ask the question, why is this woman at the synagogue? She had hope. Where? Outside of herself. Beyond this life, what did she know from scriptures? What did she know from the Hebrew Bible? There was a day that was coming. A day of resurrection at the end of the age. When all of those who were righteous in God would be raised to life and God would make everything right. She knew that was coming. She had a hope and she had a meaning in life that wasn't located in her world. It was in another world. That was why she kept... You know how many people who, who, who end up dealing with significant suffering and leave the church and walk away from God? This is the one place you should be. She knew that. She wasn't coming for... How do you know she wasn't coming to be healed? She would have shuffled her way down front from the beginning. She was in the back where she was always supposed to be. She was consigned to the back. Women were supposed to be in the back anyway. She wasn't coming for healing that day. Sure, she probably heard about Jesus. She knew what he had done. She was coming because she had the hope of knowing that God would one day make everything that was crooked straight, including her. Frankel said this. He was, he was, he was overwhelmed with why some survived the Holocaust and others didn't. And he was convinced it was where they had located their meaning in life. If your meaning in life was in your work, and you were in a death camp, your work was finished. If your meaning in life was your family, and you were in a death your family, you were finished. But if you had a meaning that was located beyond this world, outside of this world, then you had a hope that even death camps couldn't touch. So here's a contemporary understanding from that book that speaks to the human heart today in this culture. Are you ready for this? Evermore people today have the means to live but no meaning to live for. Do you know of every worldview there's only one that sees pain and suffering as meaningless. It's the secular worldview. In the secular worldview, where this world is all there is and you live in a box, all suffering is is an interruption or an interference to the life that you want to live. There can be no meaning. Why? There's no other world. There can be nothing good in suffering because this is all there is. And all suffering does is interrupt the now. But every religious worldview, every one of them, they lose credibility if they can't speak into evil, pain, and suffering, so they all must. But only the Christian worldview does what? Give you the final hope that comes in Christ. And in this passage, we see that hope. Hope that rises above just a physical healing to a complete spiritual healing that brings us into a relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, I want to give you one more quote that's going to be important, and then we'll hit our third point. Howard Thurman, African-American scholar from Boston U. He gave a very famous lecture at Harvard in 47 
on the meaning of the Negro spirituals. Listen to this. There, there, was, there was great criticism that had been written about these Negro spirituals and said they're too otherworldly. They talk too much about thrones and, and crowns and robes and the return of Jesus. And they just don't make any sense. They are too otherworldly. And he gave this talk to confront the criticism of those spirituals that were used by those who were in bondage, the slaves. And, and they state... How were they to endure their captivity? How would they possibly get to the other side? Here's here's what he says. Don't miss this. The conviction grew that this is the kind of universe that cannot deny, ultimately, the demands of love and longing. Uniting with loved ones turned finally on the hope of immortality, and the issue of immortality turned on God. Therefore... God would make it right. Sung faith, singing the faith, served to deepen the endurance of the slaves and got them to the other side. Why? Where, where did they locate their meaning of life? Not in their work, not in their families, in God. It was otherworldly. And when you locate your meaning in the other world, then nothing in this life can touch it. But if you have your meaning located here, eventually it has to go away. Why? You're going to die. Finally, number three, the detractor. This one's brief. This guy is just messed up. 13, 14, 17. Indignant, Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Notice he's afraid to speak to Jesus. So he talks to the people. There are six days for work. Pause, pause, pause. What did he just say? Did he speak truth? Did he speak scripture? Sure, quote scripture. He knows scripture. But now what does he do? Now he goes beyond scripture. He goes to what they've done to the Sabbath. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. She wasn't even coming for a healing. She was coming to the house of worship. Even though God had long before left the building. These guys, you know what I call these guys, these religious leaders? These guys, well, we'll look at that in a moment. Take a look at the law of God, the written Torah. He understood the law of God. He knew exactly what the law was. But they took the law, and in the Mishnah, they, they have these oral interpretations of the law. Dan, you have those? And in the Mishnah, they have the oral interpretations. And what they're doing is they're, 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 they're taking the law and they're expanding on the law. They're making, they're making more out of the law than what it is. They had all 39 different categories of work. And then in those categories, countless minute details for carrying things and, and kneading bread and and harvesting, and tying knots, and cooking, and and even extinguishing a flame. And they bound the hearts and the consciences of people. And they turned the Sabbath into something God never, ever intended it to be. And they... So Jesus says this, You hypocrites, in verse 15, Don't you, on the Sabbath, untie... He argues from the lesser to the greater. Don't you untie your ox or donkey and, and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, what does he do there? He identifies who she is, whom Satan has kept bound for 18. How does he know 18 years? How does he know? He knows. His omniscience knows. Sets her free on the Sabbath day. Now all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Did Jesus do any work? Even by their rules and regulations that were messed up. He didn't do any work. He only spoke. And then he just put his hands on it. There was no work. They weren't worried about the work. What were they worried about? The results of the work. That's what blew them away. Here's a woman been for 18 years. She's standing up straight and praising God. That's what bothered them. So here's what I call these guys. These are called guardians of their godless galaxy. You know how we have the guardians of the galaxy? Watch those movies. I love that stuff. These are guardians of their godless galaxy. There's no God. He's left the building a long, long time ago. But they're guarding it anyway. They're guarding it. Works of charity and necessity are absolutely required. But let me say this. You ready for this? He brings us to the, today's culture. Really, really sharply to the, today's culture. Arguing from the lesser to the greater, wouldn't you care for your ox and your donkey and lead them out and give them water? Don't, don't miss this. Everybody loves animals. Animals' rights, right? You care for animals. When a culture forgets God, animals become more important than people. Make no mistake. 
We live in a culture that has forgotten God and animals are far more. We're more concerned about saving whales than we are babies in the womb. I'm, I'm, I'm all for saving whales. Saving owls. Ooh, saving them little owls. Saving them little fish. that are. That, let's get them all saved. We're killing babies in the womb. When the culture forgets God. The whole world gets turned upside down. How do we close? Does Jesus challenge legalism? Yes, of course he does. He calls her out. So she came forward on the Sabbath. They, they said, you don't do any of this on the Sabbath. He, call, he challenges the legalism. Does Jesus crush Satan? Of course he crushes Satan. All these things are true in the passage. Why? He sets her free. She was bound by Satan. Does Jesus change her identity? Yes. He calls her a daughter of Abraham. He's talking deeply now. I'm sure she knew her line and her heritage, but he's speaking deeply. He's telling her, She's my, you're mine. You're mine. Don't miss this. The presence of Jesus challenged her. Isn't that true? Shouldn't that happen to you? Shouldn't the presence of Jesus challenge all of us? How did it challenge her? He forced her to come forward. She doesn't want to come forward. She's embarrassed by her condition. She's in the boat. She's coming every day. She's coming to the, she doesn't miss her worship. Why? She comes to her God, even in the condition she's in, because she had a heart filled with hope. But Jesus, the presence of Christ is to challenge us. So he challenges her. He makes her come to him, and she does. The power of Jesus cures her. The person of Jesus changed her. But here's the key. Ready? The promise of Jesus. What was the promise? What was the promise of Jesus? All right, let's see the passage, and then we'll go back to the beginning, tie it together, and share the gospel. You ready? As we have preached it from the beginning. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had kept bound for 18 long years, be set free? The promise of being set free. She knew the promise. How did she know the promise? She, she knew the Hebrew scripture. Or she wouldn't have been in the synagogue. She knows the God. The God who is a healing God and a saving God. So Genesis 3.15 ties the whole thing together for us and tells us what? He will crush. God is speaking to the serpent. He will crush your head. Was Satan's head crushed that day? Yes, it was a picture of what was to come on the cross and the resurrection. She understood. She had a hope. She had a hope that suffering could not destroy. Do you have that hope? There's only one hope that suffering cannot destroy. It's a hope in that other world where the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns and one day will return here and put all of his enemies under his feet, which includes all of the suffering that everyone goes through. So with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, you know who says, come, Christ, come. He, as, as he said to the woman, woman, come here. He says to you now, come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel unto salvation. Oh, my. Father, thank you for giving us such a clear picture of what you have come to do to straighten out everything that is crooked and bent and to give us true rest that can only come in an intimate, personal relationship with you. You are Lord of the Sabbath and everything on this day. As we sit here now in this sanctuary, everything that we sit here for ultimately points to you and finds its fulfillment in you. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of salvation. And we pray if there is anyone here who has never surrendered control to Christ, they hear your call in their hearts. And for the rest, help us to continue to walk by faith not by sight, keeping the meaning of our lives located in our master. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Easter Sunday, 
Now we're back. We're back into Luke 13, 10 to 17. 10 to 17. And may I make this comment? The last couple verses we didn't really touch on deeply, uh, which was about the fig tree. It was all tied into that message. But the fig tree, the message was this. The fig tree that doesn't bear fruit, Jesus says, tear it down and, 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 and throw it in the fire. This is, this is the result. Jesus was extending grace. They, they let it stay a little bit longer. This is the result of the fig tree that's not bearing fruit. You'll see that in the religious leader. There's no fruit. And so you go back to the fig tree and you see exactly what judgment looks like. And you'll see that in this passage. You'll see how beautifully all of this connects together. But this is a powerful message today. So I'm going to ask you this to think about it as we, as we read through. I'm going to ask you to think. Is this a story of healing? I'll give you three H's. Is it a story of hypocrisy? Or is it a story of hope? You have to decide. But I want you to know something that Dr. Sproul said in seminary class many, many years ago. <clears throat> he said, Tommy, remember this. Each scriptural passage has only one biblical truth, but it has countless meanings that you can apply it to. So there is so much that we can glean from this passage, but I think the one biblical truth is, is you'll see it in the title. Hope in hopelessness. Ready? Let's take a look at the passage. 10 through 17. Here now, the word of God. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God, indignant. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? And should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, All his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with hearts that are beating for the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand the truths of the gospel. Father, make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, and we always anticipate some in the sanctuary and some by way of the Internet. Many who are watching right now who have never, ever found themselves in a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, make this a word of salvation for all those in the sound of my voice. Raise them from death to life. Give the gift of repentance and faith. And for those in storm winds, make it a word of comfort. And a word of rest for the tired and the weary and the heavy laden. Father, meet us in our deepest place of need, not as we prescribe those needs, but rather as you do, for you know what we need most. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, three headings, three simple headings under hope and the hopelessness. Ready? Number one, the day. You want to take a look at the day. Number two, the deliverance. And then finally, number three, the detractor. Keep in mind, as we read through this passage and unpack it, I believe the primary message in here clearly is hope. We see healing. We see hypocrisy. We see a lot of biblical truth. But I don't think there's anything that that trumps the hope that we're going to find in this woman today in this passage. So we're going to head out into some deep water, shall we? Let our nets down for a catch. Let's take a look. Number one. There's something about this day. Let's take a look. Verse 10. On a Sabbath. No particular Sabbath. But Sabbath days are running out for Jesus. He's only a few months away from the cross. You might remember his first preaching message that we have recorded in a Sabbath. We're going to see that in a moment in in the synagogue. Synagogues, you'll remember, sprang up after the Babylonian captivity. We've talked about this before. 586 B.C., Jerusalem was sacked. 
The temple was destroyed. There was no place to worship. They were in captivity. Once they started to get freed up, they decided that we needed places to worship, and the synagogues began to spring up. Just like local churches, synagogues sprang up. If you had ten men on the register in any particular town, you qualified for a synagogue. Why is this important to understand this? This was part of that time that was full. Remember Galatians 4.4? In the fullness of time, the time was pregnant to birth forth the Savior of the world because he had all of these opportunities to teach in synagogues all over the land. Remember, the temple was closed to him. The religious leaders hated him. So he traveled from town to town to town and preached and taught in the synagogues. This is the last recorded synagogue teaching. Now, let's tie it into the first synagogue teaching. You ready? We've preached it. Luke 4. Take a look. This is how he began in the synagogue. The scroll. Remember, the itinerant preacher would come. He would get approved by the religious ruler of the synagogue. He would come and he would read the scriptures and then he would expound on them. He would teach them. So he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And it just so happens he opens to this portion just so happens. Lots of coincidences with God. And he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I didn't go any further, but you know what he does. He hands the scroll back to the attendant, and he sits down and he says, Today, in your hearing, Scripture is fulfilled. You're going to see the fulfillment of the Scripture in this passage. Did he set The prisoners free? Sure. Sure. He released the oppressed woman from her bondage. This is the perfect picture. And what is the woman a picture of? All of us, by nature. We're all bent and crooked and in bondage. But he came to make the crooked straight. Remember, that was John the Baptist's cry as the forerunner of Jesus. Make straight. The Lord is coming. So this is powerful that we see this. But beyond the synagogue, this day, why why is this day important? I want to show this to you. Let's look at what we have at least recorded in Scripture. We have seven recorded healings on the Sabbath. We're certain there were many more, but we have seven for a reason. And Jesus is intentional about healing on the Sabbath, and we'll get to that in a moment. But here's the seven that we have in Scripture. We've got a four in Luke, two in John, Luke 4.35. You might remember the demon-possessed man. Remember him on the Sabbath, 39, a few verses later, not inside the synagogue, but he went to Peter's house for a meal. Peter's mother-in-law had a high fever, and he heals her, another Sabbath day healing. How about in chapter 6, verse 10, the man with the withered hand heals him on the Sabbath. Luke 14, 4, which we may get to someday if the Lord leaves me alive long enough. The man with swelling of his body. Then in John, you might remember, the man who was crippled by the pool Bethesda, 38 years, Sabbath day healing. And then in John 9, 7, the man born blind. Just a point of interest. They had great restrictions on the Sabbath. We'll touch on that in a moment. But you were allowed to, to, to do medical healing, ministry, if, if it was life and death. Were any of those healings life and death? No. Some of them have been bound for years. So Jesus is intentionally teaching us something, isn't he? He was intentionally teaching the religious leaders who were blind, poor, blind, and naked. They were the fig tree that would not bear fruit. And Jesus said, cut it down and throw it into the fire. It's had enough opportunity to bear fruit. So I want you to see this. This is important that we get this. Are you ready? He's doing this in front of them for a reason. He could... Could he have healed the day before? Could he have healed the day after? Could he have healed outside of the synagogue? Of course he could. Jesus is intentional. You ready for this? Don't miss this. Mark 2, 27 to 28. Do not miss this, please. The Sabbath. Remember, he's constantly being dogged by these religious leaders. 
The Sabbath was made for man, man, not man for the Sabbath. And then, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, I want to show you something before we get to our second point. Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. So what, what is he really saying? To the, he's primarily to the religious leaders. He's saying everything that you think the Sabbath is about, which much of what you think it's about, it's not. But everything that you think it's about, that really is what it's about, ultimately is about me. Because the Sabbath points to whom? The Savior. How do we know that? Well, you have to go back to the beginning. So now go to the beginning of the passage. Stay with me. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. How do we know the Sabbath was made for man? The, the Sabbath was instituted after man was made. Yes? When was man made? What day? Day six. When was the Sabbath made? Seven. Ha, <laughs> don't miss this. Don't miss this. So right away you understand what? The Sabbath, was, the Sabbath was made after man, for man. And what does God do on the Sabbath? Don't just say he rests. Don't just say that because then we miss the deeper message. He blesses the Sabbath and makes it what? Holy. So what does God do? God creates and says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then what does he do? He turns all of creation back in on himself. And he blesses the seventh day and makes it holy and says what? Just remember everything I've created is all about the creator. So what is, so what is Jesus saying by healing on the Sabbath? You're looking for this great eternal Sabbath rest to come. And he's here. It's me. I'm the Sabbath rest. Uh, this doesn't happen after the fall. This is in creation. This is when man could rest. When Adam and Eve had the ability to rest. Who has the ability to rest now? None of us. How many of you are thinking right now what you're going to do as soon as this guy gets done talking? And I hope he gets done soon. Come on. You're all right. All right. You can't rest. Has there ever, let me ask you this question, has there ever been a culture in the history of mankind more in need of Sabbath rest than our culture today? Absolutely not. But let me make something clear about Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest is not simply abstaining from labor. It is not. It was never intended for that. It is advancing toward the Lord. You're not resting on the Sabbath just because you knock off from the office or you stop your norm. That's not rest. You're resting when you're advancing toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Sabbath rest. And Jesus heals on the Sabbath and says, you've missed it. The Sabbath is me. I'm your rest. I'm your healing. I'm your salvation. So the day is critical. He healed our every day of the week, but it was specifically speaking to the religious leaders. You bind the hearts and consciences of God's people, and you miss the Sabbath Lord himself. The day leads us to the deliverance. You ready for this? Don't miss this. This is the key. I think this is the key to the entire... I, I, stop. This is not just the key to this passage. This is the key to every single passage of Scripture. This is it. Watch this. 13, 11 to 13. A woman was there, crippled by a spirit for 18 years, bent over and could not straighten up. Seeing her, he called her forward and said, Woman, pause. Let me give some counsel to our children today. Never say that to your mother. <laughs> Michael, you understand me. It was a term of endearment back then. It is not today. If I heard my Brock say to his mother, Woman! I would greet my son with a hug and a holy kiss. Oh, I would. This is a term of endearment. Remember when he said to his mother, woman, at the wedding at Cana? So this is a good term. And he calls her forward and he says, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Okay, just stay with me. This woman, 
let's just get a picture. Okay? Sometimes it, it, we, we all learn differently, right? We learn visibly and audibly and, and, and with our senses. Take a look at this. I want you to get a picture. Take a look at the picture. There's the woman. She has a condition. We don't need to know the term. There's a couple different terms for it today. But she has a condition where her back, really, the backbones have really been fused forward. She's had this ailment. And what happens is you have this pressure in your spine. And you start to lean forward to relieve the pressure. And as you do this over a long enough period of time, you continue to bend and bend and bend until you're finally locked into position. This woman is locked into this position. She can't come out. Now, modern medicine today, there have been some where they put rods in the back and they've tried to straighten them out, but this, there was no hope for these people. There, there, there's, there's not much hope today. So the bones are fused. But I want you to think of this. This woman, she, she, she's in the back of the synagogue. If she was coming for healing, she would have come to the front. She's in the back. She's what? Spurgeon. You know what Spurgeon said about her walk? She's walking as if she's walking into her grave. It's only one way for her to look. So she's walking like this. And she hears, woman! And she has to turn her head. It doesn't tell me in the passage what Jesus did, but I, I'm going to say this. Jesus knew where she was and where her eyes would be and her head, and I think Jesus went like this. Woman! Is that consistent with the character of Christ? That he would bend down and speak to a broken woman? Yeah, he bent down and came off that throne and came into this world and took on flesh to save all of us. So make no mistake, our Lord bent down and he looked in this one. No one would look in her eyes. She wasn't wanted. She wasn't welcomed. First of all, women were second-class citizens. Add to that, this woman has to be one of the worst sinners of all. Why? They related suffering to what? Sin. Job's friend said, Job, confess your sins. This woman was the worst of sinners. She can't bend over. She can't stand up. Jesus bends down. I, I just believe. Woman. But now, why doesn't he just heal her? Why? He's intentional and he calls her forward in front of everyone. That would be a little humiliating. I think at some level it would be, it would be hard for... But he says, come. So she shuffles. She shuffles, and everyone is watching. And he says that your infirmity is gone. You've been healed. But now he does something. What does he do? He touches her. Why? Did he have to touch her to heal her? No. No, he touched her to get her connected to her deepest hope. There was no reason to touch the woman. How often was she touched? I don't know. But Jesus puts his hands on this woman and affirms her place. What does he say? Let's look at this. She stands up and praises God. I don't think she... I don't think when she stood up, she looked up and praised God. I think she looked straight in his eyes and praised God because she knew who he was. She knew he was the promised Messiah. So here's the question. Why was this woman in the same? Why was she in the synagogue? Why? Why? If she was coming for a healing, he wouldn't have called her forward. She would have been forward. You remember the man they lowered down in the roof and sent him in front of him while he was teaching? She would have been up in the front. She wasn't coming for a healing. What was she? Why was she in the synagogue? She understood the Old Testament. She understood the hope of a saving God. She knew that if she wasn't going to be healed in this life, she'd be healed in the next. She knew there was a resurrection that was coming. And she knew on that final day, all things that were wrong would be made right. And she would be made whole. She had this hope. Stay with me. Ready? Many of you are familiar with the name Viktor Frankl. Yes? Psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust. Part of his mission was to help others find meaning even in the face of death camps. Now, he asked the question, what was the difference? If you've ever read Man's Search for Meaning, if you haven't, read it. It's, it's worth a read. He asked the question, what was the difference between many of those who survived and many who didn't? And not the ones that went to the gas chamber, those that just simply died. Those who simply gave up and quit. What was the difference? He identified the difference was where they located their meaning. 
Listen to me carefully. If their meaning was located in their work and they were put on the train and dropped off at a death camp, what happened to their meaning? It was obliterated. It was gone. If their meaning was in their families, their families were now taken away. Their meaning was destroyed. If their meaning was in their purpose, power, and power, it was all destroyed. Only if their meaning was where? Outside of this life could it not be taken away. There is only one meaning in this entire universe that cannot be affected by evil, pain, and suffering. And that meaning is in this other world. But I want you to see something that applies to the contemporary culture. Notice what Frankl says in this book. Notice what he says about meaning. Ever more people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. That's, that's the condition of the contemporary culture. We have plenty of means to live, but no meaning to live for. Where do you locate your meaning? Now, you will remember, if you're old enough, you remember the Negro spirituals? Remember those? I want to give you a quote. I want you to see something on how powerful. Howard Thurman, this is the mid-20th century, African-American scholar at Boston U., he gave this famous lecture at Harvard in 1947 on the meaning of the spiritual, uh, the Negro spirituals. He is answering the criticism that these African American spirituals were too otherworldly. The critics of these spirituals would say, "This is none of this is, is even real. There's too much singing about crowns and thrones and robes and the return of Jesus. None of this makes any sense." And he answers the critics. And he answers him and says, because their hope, these slaves, who had no hope in this life, but because their hope was placed in the next life, they had the endurance to continue and to go on. And they sang that endurance through these songs. Listen to, look at this quote. Don't miss this. Because this speaks to us today. Where is your hope? The conviction grew that this is the kind of universe that cannot deny ultimately the demands of love and longing. Uniting with loved ones turned finally on the hope of immortality. And the issue of immortality turned on God. Therefore, God would make it right. Listen to me. Every single worldview except one has found meaning and purpose in suffering. Do you know the one that has not? The one that dominates the culture we live in today, the secular worldview. They see evil, pain, and suffering as an interruption and an interference to the life that they want to live. There can be no meaning in suffering because this, in this box, is all there is. No, 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 no. Those Negro spiritual songs, those Holocaust victims that survived, this woman 2,000 years ago that walked into the synagogue had hope that was otherworldly. Her hope was beyond herself. Her hope was outside of this life. She knew there was a God who would make it right. If not now, then. Where is your hope? How many, listen to me, how many people do you know personally, church-going folk that you've known for years, and some storm wind blows in and all of a sudden they're gone? Where was their hope? Their hope wasn't in God. Their hope was in themselves and what they were doing for God and hoping to protect themselves from something bad that would happen. If your hope isn't otherworldly, this world will crush you. If your hope is in your family, all of your family members, if you live long enough, will be gone. If your hope is in your job, it cannot sustain you. If your hope is in your finances, it will not serve. Only one hope the hope that is outside of this world. And that's what that woman had. And that's what we need to have. Why could nothing destroy the hope? Very much so because it was otherworldly. That's why they sang those songs. 
That's why we sing as we do. Finally, number three, the detractor. Listen, even the, un- even the unbelieving heart. Listen to this. All right, you ready for this? I don't want to get into the evangelism program, the stuff that we talk about in this culture, but listen to this. There isn't, you, you, can't find any, you can't find any human heart any human heart that says they don't believe in God that doesn't at least somewhere deep inside say, I, I, I hope there's justice somewhere. They see stuff that, that, that is evil and wrong and say, that, that, should, that shouldn't be. That should be punished. That, that, someone should make that right. Every human heart cries for justice. Why? Every human heart, every human heart has a hole in it. That's the size of God. Because they are all image bearers of God and your heart cries out for justice. That woman knew her justice was coming. If not in that life, the life, the life to come. That's what we have to know. But now the detractor. Watch this guy. Indignant, Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler says to them, he doesn't speak to Jesus. Why? He's probably thinking, well, you know, all the stuff I heard about this guy must be true. He had, this woman's been coming in here for years, bent over. He's got her standing up straight. Let me talk to the people instead of him. Lest he bends me over. I'm just trying to get in his mind. He should have been speaking to Jesus. But he doesn't. And he says to the people, there are six days for work, period. Stop. Pause. Did he speak truth? It's in the Bible. It's, it's in the, the Bible they had, the, the Hebrew Bible. That's the Old Testament, yes? Okay, that's the Bible. But now what does he do? He goes beyond the Bible. So come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. Why? He corrupted the Sabbath. So let's go back. We have a law. We have the law of God. It's the written Torah, the Mosaic law. He spoke the law. He spoke the law. But then outside of the law, we had what was called the Mishnah, the oral interpretation of the law. They took the law, and then they decided to turn it into something that that they wanted it to be. They had 39, we've talked about this before, they had 39 separate categories of work, stuff you weren't supposed to do, related to tying knots and kneading bread and and, and harvesting and threshing. Remember, they, they picked wheat, and they were condemned for harvesting, and they made all of these rules, and they bound the hearts of the people of God. But it was unbiblical. God never gave those instructions. These were their oral interpretations that had been passed down from one generation to the next to the next. We find that today in the church. Traditionalists. You ever heard this line? Well, that's the way it's always been. We've never done it like that here. Well, my, my. Maybe it's time for a change. But what's the problem with change? Only person likes change is a wet baby. Right, Mama? It's the only person like change. Our babies used to cry out all night. I get that diaper off of me. You'll find out. You get your babies. You'll see. It's the only person. We don't like change. Like it the way it always has been. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it's always going to be. No, 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 no. Jesus says, you guys have messed this whole thing up. Well, let's keep going through the passage, and we're almost done. The Lord answered. Now, the, he, he doesn't speak to Jesus, but Jesus now speaks to him. You hypocrites, not just him, there's got to be more of them there. Plural. You hypocrites. Don't now, he argues from the lesser to the greater. We've talked about lesser to greater. Now he's going to talk about, don't miss this. You hypocrites, don't you on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, don't you untie the ox and the donkey and lead them out to give it water? Of course you do, right? They need water, so you do that. So you're a hypocrite. Then should not this woman, a daughter of, oh, daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day From what bound her? He argues from the lesser to the greater. If you do it for an animal, why wouldn't you do it for a person? What's the matter with you people? And let me ask you the question. No matter how minute the detail was for their law, their oral traditional law in the Mishnah, what law could he have possibly broken? He spoke to her and he put his hands on her. He didn't do anything. That made him more angry. He didn't do anything. Why? He didn't have to. He was God. Guys have been driven out of their minds. So they're just trying anything to convince. So that's why they ended up killing him. Had enough of the guy. But now, look at the last line. Now, all his opponents, there have to be a bunch of them in there. All of these just stuffy, legalist. And I love them. I just love them somewhere else. There's places for them. There is. It's a place for everyone. Put all the legalists in another building. Not. They're humiliated. 
But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Well, they weren't angry at his work. They were angry at the results of his work. They knew he wasn't working. It was the results that blew him away. So this is not good for us. We're going to lose everything that we've worked for. When a culture, don't miss this. You ready for this? How many, how many of you love animals? Yeah, right, right. You love animals? I'm an, I'm, I'm an animal rights advocate. I love animals. Love animals. But let me make something perfectly clear to you. And this isn't something new. We, we see it here in the passage. They, they, they take the ox and the donkey and they give it water. When a culture forgets God, animals become more important than people. Are you with me? Oh, I love to save the whales. I love to save them screeching owls somewhere that they're trying to save and them little fish that are swimming where they shouldn't be. And they're save the fish and save the whales and save the owl. But how about the unborn baby in the womb? How about saving that too? When a culture forgets God, animals become more important than people. And that's what Jesus has just said. What's wrong with you? She's a daughter of Abraham and a daughter of the Most High God. Should she not be ministered to today? The Sabbath day, the one day above all days, what's wrong with you? You have forgotten God. And people now have been trumped by the beast. How do we close? Does Jesus challenge legalism in the passage? Of course he does. He, he could have healed her at a distance. He didn't have to heal her in the synagogue. He didn't have to do it on the Sabbath. He's challenging their man-made rules. So does he challenge legalism? Yes. Calls her out. Verse 12. Does he crush Satan? Yes. He crushes Satan. Verse 12. He calls her clean. And then finally, does Jesus change her identity? He calls her his, a daughter of Abraham. Watch this. Four things you need to see. He's now, he's challenged legalism, right? He has he is crushed Satan. He fixes the problem. He crushes Satan. And he changes her identity by making it clear that she is a daughter of Abraham. She's his. Now watch these four things and don't miss this. You ready for this? Number one, the presence of Jesus challenged her. Does the presence of Jesus challenge you? It's supposed to. He challenges her by calling her forward. He brings her forward and challenges her to, to, to be humiliated. She's already feeling bad as she walks in every day humped over. But he challenges her and says, come to me. Next watch. The power of Jesus cured her. But he wasn't finished. The person of Jesus changed her. And finally, the promise of Jesus compelled her. What does that mean? What was the promise that Jesus gave? Ah, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. She, she knew the promise of God. She knew what was the promise of God. What does he say in the passage? Look at the passage, then we'll go back to the promise of God. She knew the... Why was she in the synagogue? She knew her God. Her meaning was not in this world. It was in the next world. She knew God would make it right. She didn't know how long it would take. She didn't know she'd get healed here, but she knew her healing was coming. She knew the promise what does Jesus say? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Should she not be set free? Of course she should. She had a promise. What was the promise? Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Did Jesus crush the head of the serpent? Yes. He set her free. Satan's dominion over the woman had been broken. She knew the promise of God. And she came every single Sabbath in hope. Do you? Do you come in hope? So many leave the church when bad stuff happens. Why would you leave the only place that you're really going to find the blessings of God? But notice this. Jesus says to the woman, Woman, come. He says to you today, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Christ says to you, come. Will you come to Christ? You don't come in your own strength.
God has stirred your heart by listening to the truth of the gospel right here this morning. You know the truth, and that truth is setting you free. Your heart is being stirred. Will you come by grace through faith to Christ? Will you come for your salvation this day? It's only because Christ is called. It's only because Christ is willing to set you free. And know this, that once you are in Christ, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the promise of the gospel. If you've never prayed, we're going to pray together in a moment. Pray with me. Pray with me now. Join me. Father, if there's anyone here or anyone by way of the internet who has never surrendered control to Christ, make this a word of salvation. Give the gift of repentance and faith. Raise them from death to life. If you've never prayed, all believers, pray with me now. If you've never prayed by way of the internet or inside this sanctuary, just pray these words. You're not saved by a prayer, but pray these words. God, I heard the truth today. I see that we are all bound like this woman. We are in bondage. There is no way to be set free by myself. I cannot save myself, so I cry out to Jesus. I receive your mercy and your goodness by grace through faith, oh God, I give you control of my life. I turn my heart and my life over to you. Every aspect of what I am is yours. Lead me. I love you, Lord, in Christ's name. And Lord, for the rest of us, help us all to keep walking by faith and not by sight. If we keep looking at stuff, Lord, it's going to mess us up. We have to see beyond the stuff that's going on in this world to the next and know that you are in control of all things and that you are working all things ultimately to the good of your people. May we receive that today. And may we receive that with a heart that is filled with thanksgiving. And all this we thank you for in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and continue to worship with us.